So obviously this coming Thursday is Thanksgiving, one of the biggest holidays in our country. And I'm sure we'll all have our own unique, you know, ways that we like to celebrate the holiday. But there will be a lot of things that are shared that, I don't know, 90% or above of us will do. So for example, many of you of us will probably spend it with friends and family. A lot of people will be traveling. Did you know, fun fact, that the, every year that the Wednesday before Thanksgiving is the worst traffic day of the year. And so if you're going home to like New York or driving somewhere or, or whatever, going to Connecticut, maybe somewhere close by, uh, highly recommend not leaving on Wednesday. Every single year it's by far the worst. So many, most of us will be do, doing that. I'm sure most, if not all of us, will be watching TV, whether football or, or maybe the Macy's Day Parade or something like that. Many or most, if not all of us, will be shopping, whether in person or online. It's the biggest shopping day of the year. But above all those things, the most likely thing statistically that we'll all be doing is eating turkey. Statistics say that over 80%, well over 80% of Americans eat turkey on Thanksgiving Day. And, and take a look at these actual numbers up on the screen. So $1.1 billion dollars will be spent on turkeys this Thanksgiving. And we're in an economic crisis right now. We're in a recession. But somehow it's, it's up from last year, $985 million. $1.1 billion spent on turkeys. 46 million turkeys will be eaten. That is a gross number of birds, right? Like, ooh, I don't know. You know when like 30 pigeons fly above you? Anybody else get grossed out by that? Imagine... 100 turkeys, like how disgusting that sounds. 46 million, it's a staggering, staggering number. 293 million, that's the 80-something percent. Million Americans are expected to eat turkey this coming Thursday, and even beyond that, because you know Americans love their leftovers for Thanksgiving. Now, I don't want to start off the message getting on the wrong foot with anybody here and offending anybody, especially those of you who are really into tradition, but I just got to say it. Turkey sucks. Why does everybody love turkey so much? Like, it's, it, I love Thanksgiving. It's, it's one of the best holidays. I, I love looking forward to it and all that. And in my mind, why do we have the centerpiece of such a special day, something so lame? Here's the way that I think about it. Imagine your friends plan a birthday party for you, and you're all hanging out. You're, you just had a good meal. You're in somebody's house, and then the lights go off. And you see the glow of candles flickering somewhere, right? And there's always somebody who walks really slowly to not blow them out, like out. And instead of an ice cream cake to celebrate this special day, imagine that person carrying the candles comes out with jello, right? They're like, happy birthday. That's what I feel like turkey on Thanksgiving is like. Is anybody else here with me or am I alone? Turkey's like, what? Oh my gosh, really? Okay, I'm offended at a lot of people then, 90% of you. Well, here we go. Turkey's bad, okay? You have to spend hours, hours on it just to get it edible. And even then, it's not that good. I've had turkey that was brined for 24 hours. And then in the oven, what, six to eight, you literally massage every crevice with thick gobs of butter, season the crap out of it, stuff it, baste it for all those hours, and still it's like, ah, eh, it's okay. What food on earth is Okay, when you spend all day and like have it swimming in butter, can you imagine how good it would be if you did that with beef? You don't have to imagine. You've had it before. You know what it's called? Competition brisket. 
That's what it's called. You flew to Texas, waited outside in the, in the Texas sun for four hours, and paid a lot of money to eat it. That's how, like, how amazing would Thanksgiving be if brisket were the centerpiece? I don't know. I don't get it, but it's tradition. End of rant. I have a point. Culinarily, in my opinion, I guess with two other people in the room, I swear I thought it would be the other way around. We celebrate a really, really special day, a meaningful, lovely, lovely day. Culinarily, kind of like, you know, lamely, like we could do a little bit better. And my objective for today, for Thursday, is that we don't do that spiritually too. So in my dream world, I guess only a couple of others too, my Thanksgiving table culinarily, right, would bring match the excitement, the joy, the specialness, if you will, of the day. And so I'd rather have a sushi boat, I don't know about you, instead of a dry bird or brisket or something of that nature. I want to spend my holiday with something that I eat and enjoy that like elevates my enthusiasm for what it represents, the gratefulness and all the things that we have to be thankful for. Something that can match that experience of what God has done in my life to lead me to gratefulness. And spiritually, I want to do that too. I want you to do that this Thursday, spiritually. This week, and especially Thanksgiving, as we have time off from school and work and all that stuff, I would love for us to root our gratefulness in something that can actually match and then exceed our expectations and the specialness of giving God thanks. And I find that we often root our things and, and cele- celebrate and root our celebration in things that are maybe are, are small. Focusing on the, the turkey, if you will, instead of the, you know, the sushi platter. See, our souls, we need something that isn't just circumstantially pleasant and nice. But I want more than that this Thursday. I want my mind to be filled with something that's eternally awesome. Not just something that's kind of pleasant for the moment. And so for that reason, my passage that I chose for today isn't just going to be all like say thanks related. We're going to do something seemingly random. We're going to spend time time in Romans. And I want to look at one of the top major fruits, the benefits of the gospel, of knowing Jesus, of being saved by him, your life being transformed. What is something that's awesome in your life today because of the, the death and the resurrection and the, the reign of Jesus Christ in your life? And so my objective, again, is for this Thursday, when you wake up, that, yeah, you're glad about, oh, it's a nice day off of work. Yay, I'm with family. We made it here safely. We're going to have a good meal. Yeah, all that is great to be thankful for. We should be. But I'm hoping that when you wake up on Thursday, you're going to be overwhelmed with thankfulness because of what you have in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to spend our time in the beginning of Romans 5. But really quickly, we're going to set the stage before we get there just so that we're not like plopping in randomly, okay? So Romans is organized very clearly. You know, in grade school, English class, your teacher taught you how to write a paper, like clear introduction, beginning, middle, end. Paul already knew that. He's an expert at writing and and he's very organized. So Romans starts with the problem. The Apostle Paul jumps right in in chapter 1. He's like, we have a big, big problem, everybody. It's called sin. And everyone is responsible. Nobody is immune to this issue. And it's a big problem. And he's very direct about, you know, we're enemies of God. We're bearers of his wrath. That every single person is a fallen being. Big problem. Next logical step, number two, is then what's the solution? 
If there's a big, big problem, we need a really big, big solution. And he explains that's what we have in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the grace of God and our faith in him. It solves the sin problem. And then step number three, if that's the case, what happens to my life? What are the benefits? And this is where Paul, like where, like, you know, so many people argue for good reason that Romans is the best and most important book of all the Bible. That Romans chapter 8 is the best chapter ever written in human history. It's a good argument. And this is where Paul's masterpiece really starts to shine. Where he says, we have a problem. Jesus solved it. And now what does that mean for your life? And that's where I want to enter in, in this passage. So Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, so he just talked about Jesus has saved you, right? Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's got to be one of the best verses in all scripture, right? Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So one singular point this morning for us to be grateful this Thursday, this Thanksgiving, for the peace that you have between you and God. That we can all be rejoicing with gratefulness and praising God for the peace that we have between us and him. So as I said, leading up to this point in Romans, right, Paul has really drilled down the reality of bad news before coming to Christ. It was awful. We were separated, he says. We were at odds. We were enemies with God, bearers of his wrath. But the solution, having been, having been justified through faith, we have peace with God now through Jesus. And he says, he explains, he used the word reconciliation or reconcile three times in this passage. That Jesus has reconciled you with the Father and now you are at peace with him. There's no more animosity. You are no longer at odds with him. There is no more distance, no more separation, nothing but peace in your relationship with you and your heavenly father. Let's talk about biblical peace for a moment because I think we can hear peace in a lot of ways. I think as, I mean, for me, maybe you can relate to me. I generally think of peace in two ways. One is kind of the example of like, let's say I'm mediating a fight between people and you've heard people say, okay, okay, you don't have to be best friends. You don't have to be friends forever, but can we just live peacefully amongst each other? Or the other version is like big scale, like wars, nations. You know, there's like a ceasefire that's agreed or a treaty that nations make. All right, we have our boundary. You guys stay over there. We'll stay over here. Let's just be at peace with each other. No more fighting. 
That's kind of how I, I hear peace. But this is not at all biblical peace. Just leaving each other alone and being like kind. This is not the peace that Paul is talking about saying that you have between God. It's not neutrality. That Jesus forgave your sins and now you're good. This peace is not just absence of hostilities. This peace is one in which God is invested in the well-being and prosperity of the people that he's at peace with. This means that now God's love is actively pouring out in pursuit of you constantly at all times. So if you place your faith in the work of Jesus Christ, if you're saved by his grace through faith, you are now at peace with him. And again, this isn't, okay, now you're just not at odds with him anymore. It's way beyond that. You are now, an, he is now actively invested in your prosperity type of peace. He now has an unconditional pursuit of loving you type of peace. And this is something that I really want us to celebrate and give thanks for and meditate on this Thanksgiving. This is something that I feel like can it, like match and exceed how special of a day it can be. Something that we can root and place our joy in and it can actually satisfy that. And I don't know, maybe it's not everybody, but I feel like it's something we need. Because many of us are really, really good at feeling like we're always at war with God. We're at least estranged with God or at odds with him. Or maybe just one way. Maybe not you to him, but him to you. Many of us default to this idea that he's always a little angry or annoyed. Maybe disappointed. Some of you feeling like he's always pissed at you. We're really good at assuming that. And kind of having that as our default mindset of, what is God's thoughts about me? Let's check out this quote from Dane Orland. Fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. I like the way he puts this. We are factories of fresh resistances to Christ's love. Even when we run out of, run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. See, this Thanksgiving, my prayer is that if this is you, that God would do that surgery, uproot that from the lies from your mind, that he's, he can't wait to punish you or get rid of you or he's annoyed at you or he wants to whip you into shape because you're, you're so weak and f like you're such a failure and all these kind of lies. And he would replace it with what we see directly from scripture that you're at peace with him. And look at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this verse is in complete contrast to any idea that he's always angry. Isn't there a contradiction here? From our belief to actual scripture, a God who lives, loves sinners so much that he would die to them even while they were still imperfect is not one that is just so eager and ready to smite you. No, he's one who's been pursuing you even before you ever accepted him. Relentless in his love and now at peace because of the sacrifice of his son. See, I'm praying for you if you often struggle with this, this Thanksgiving, that God would do the work inside of your soul to understand that you're at peace with him right now. 
But I know that can be hard for us. Like sometimes it's going to take a lot of, you know, that, you know, spiritual surgery of sorts. Because in life, relationships are really hard. Relationships are very rarely at peace. Like we're, we know how volatile and, and dramatic like relationships can be on earth. And so, of course, it would be difficult for us to wrap our minds around the fact that God would always be at peace with us. Especially if he's all-knowing and all-holy and knows more about me than my friend does who I'm, you know, at odds with. You know, life kind of gives us this picture that relationships are never, like, cemented or, like, firm and unchanging. So why wouldn't we feel that way about God, right? Especially if he knows everything. A number of years ago, I don't know, six, seven years ago, I was subscribed to Time Magazine. Remember when we used to get magazines in the mail? You'd show up and you would open paper? Okay. Uh, so it would show up my door and I would, I would read it. Like I, you know, I really enjoyed it. And I remember one really interesting article in Time that was just based around the investment and difficulty of making friends. So it's talking about community building and this and that. It wasn't, obviously it wasn't a Christian article, but just this group that did a study of what it takes to make friends um, and how you really need to do this and that and studies show this and that. And there's a few statistics that I thought was really interesting that I wrote down. So this is what the results of the study was. They said that it takes 50 hours to make a nice acquaintance, they said, based upon this group study. And then, this was kind of shocking, it said it takes 100 hours to make a friend. Now, before, I, before we show the last number, if you're sitting next to a friend, how many hours do you think it took for you to get really close to them? Close friend. This study said that it takes 200 hours to make a very close friend. That's the investment of time and energy and effort that you had to put in, apparently. That's a lot, right? That's a lot of time. I was thinking about it this way. Let's say you and I were like, hey, I want to be close friends with you. Let's eat dinner this week every day. <laughs> Monday through Friday at least. So just follow me. Ready? We're like, oh, I want to be close friends with you. Let's eat dinner together Monday through Friday this week. And, and we'll get like ice cream or boba or tea, something after. So it's like two hours a night maybe, right? That's only 10 hours. So we need to do that nine more times for us to be friends, apparently. So a lot of time, not even close friends, just like whatever friends, regular friends mean. So a lot of time apparently goes into building a strong relationship. So in my personal life, as somebody who has had friends and the ups and downs and the volatility and the blessings and everything in between in relationships, but especially more so as a pastor who has been with, counseled, spoken to people's relationships that are up and down, volatility, up and but you know, all the good and bad. I didn't do a study. I don't take data. But there is something that over my ministry career that I've concluded that makes me really sad. So it takes 100 hours to make a friend, apparently, 200 hours to make a really, really close friend. But what I've seen over the years that makes me really sad is it takes a lot of hours to make a close friend, but it can take very few to lose one. In my decade or so here at Cornerstone, I've seen friends that have been built on two, three, four, five hundred hours of deep, rich relationship and love. And I've seen that go away because of a bad two, three hour fight. 
Here's the thing. I'm not bringing this up to talk about relationships. That's another sermon series for another day. I'm not bringing this up to talk about, oh, how, like, our commitment is too weak and, and, you know, we can do better with brother and sisterhood. We'll, We'll talk about it in the future. But I bring this up to say, I wonder if because we experience this type of thing in life, the volatility, the conditionality, the fragileness of relationships, that why wouldn't we feel like God, our relationship with God kind of plays by the same rules? That it's fragile, it's volatile, it's conditional. But it is by completely, completely different rules. Because the gospel makes certain for all of us that this type of volatility and the insecurity we may have in our friendships and relationships, this type of loss from the mistakes and hurts and sins, it doesn't apply. God is completely unlike any of us and the relationship you have with him is completely unlike in this way the relationships that we have on earth that are fleeting and fickle. See, between you and God, you have the freedom to be yourself, to make mistakes, to be imperfect, to be a work in progress, a changing and growing person, and at the same time, be fully and perfectly loved and to be at peace with him completely. You're, it's not at risk. Your relationship with God is not fragile. It's permanently peaceful. This is how amazing the gospel is. This is why Romans and, and passages like this are Paul's masterpiece. We've got a problem. The solution is Jesus. And now look at your reward, church. No matter what you do, if you've accepted Christ into your life, if you are a new, regenerate son and daughter of his, you are at peace with your heavenly father. An actively pursuing you type peace that your mistakes are not going to change. Romans, I mean, in our passage alone, he says, let's, let's contrast this thought that God's mad at me all the time with Christ died for the ungodly. That God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That we were enemies with God, verse 10, but we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. We're at peace. So if you've experienced the hardships of not being in peace of relationship, which I imagine is all of us, you know that the permanence and beauty of this type of relationship of unconditional love is a treasure. Something that we can rejoice and be grateful for for the rest of our days. And this Thanksgiving, I want to celebrate that. I want you to celebrate that. And I want us to also share that. See, God has given us this gift for us to enjoy, but also for us to steward, to share, to give away. Romans 5 teaches us that God was extravagant in his love to the ungodly, to the unlovable, to the undeserving, to enemies. So this season, this Thanksgiving and holiday season, who is someone that you're at odds with? Maybe a coworker that's just always gotten on your nerves or a roommate that you're just like in the middle of like fighting with now or somebody that you went into argument with or someone that you just straight up dislike. How can we then steward the peace that God has given us and share it with others? Maybe traveling for Thanksgiving for you, you're like everyone else is so excited to see their family, like it's going to be so awkward when I get home. My, my mom and I just got into this blow-up argument or oh, I can't stand my siblings. Not every person is going home to, to peace. How can 
this word and the certainty of the peace that you have with God start to soften your heart so maybe you can bring peace home to that place that isn't going to be all festive and bright holiday. See, everyone loves always talking about how the holidays are time to increase cheer. And, and I wonder what that even means as we're in the holiday season. Because the world, like the news and, and society, they define that as put on an ugly sweater that makes your coworkers laugh and then pay it forward at Starbucks. Right? Like that's, oh, this world is such a beautiful place, you know? So every year there's always a news story where the reporter is standing in front of a Starbucks or their drive through line like, hey, Bob, I'm here at the local Starbucks in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I got word from our sources that 35 cars paid it forward. Let's see if we can get to 100. It's like, okay, I guess that's nice. But is that like, oh, the bright light that this dark world needs is a free coffee? Like, I don't know. I, our standards for making the world better places far too low if that's what excites us. God has such better light and joy, love for this world. And we can be as instruments of bringing something so much better than passing $3 to the car behind you. It's giving peace to those who don't deserve it. Peace in places that don't expect it. Pursuing and love people who don't do that in return to you. Being able to look at an enemy and in the way that God did to, to us, seeing them as beloved. I think as a church, that is our responsibility if we're talking about the holidays or a time of cheer and of making this world better. Letting the real fruit of the gospel shine in a dark world that needs it. So this Thanksgiving, a few days from now, be thankful for your turkey. If I guess you guys like it, y'all are lame. I don't know. Time for your work off, or time off from work and school and, and exams. Maybe you'll get a TV or a sweater for fifty percent off. Yeah, it's all great. Be grateful. But this Thanksgiving, we can also be eternally grateful for the fact that you need never to fear or feel insecurity in your relationship with God because his affection towards you will never change and your status between him is always loving peace. My commitment this week and especially this Thursday is to wake up on Thursday morning and pray for all of you, for Cornerstone Church, that we would bask in the reality of God's affection for you, for you to know that you're not at odds with your heavenly father but at peace with him. And that not just Thursday, but this holiday season, that we would be a church that starts to share and steward that peace with the world that needs it. Bringing love and reconciliation to those who don't deserve it and to places that don't expect it. So let's commit our hearts now in prayer uh, for that cause. Father, I pray that, um, yeah, you really would overwhelm us this Thanksgiving and this holiday season with really the, the, the breadth and width of how much you love us. You, you know, in faith, we, we, in, in, in this journey, we grow a lot and learn new things, but I feel like the most powerful 
things and moments are when we relearn an old thing again and again and again, and it hits us maybe differently, or our eyes are opened a little bit wider, or we read it or hear it, and it settles differently in our hearts and souls. And, and yeah, we, maybe many of us have heard for many years that, that you died for us while we were sinners, and that we're at peace with you, and that you love us, but God, would this just, would Romans 5 and, and these verses and these words just fall freshly on our souls? God, I pray for anybody in the house now and, and watching at home who, who has this feeling that you're always a little disappointed or annoyed or upset. Holy Spirit, in your grace, would you remove those impure and wrong thoughts? And would you overwhelm us with the fact that you are pursuing us in your love and that you're our God, we are your children. Lord, I want to pray for this world that, I mean, we say that we're in a rough time, but, you know, it's all human history where there's been war constantly, where there are literally, like, big-scale wars of nations or wars between families and individuals, war between neighbors, and there's always been that sin of fighting and animosity and hatred and and all that stuff. And it's absolutely the case today. And as people who should have received that from you, but got the complete opposite, who have been extended love and peace, I pray that we would steward that good news with the world today, with our families, our friends, our coworkers, classmates, roommates, etc., neighbors. That what we walk around with in this world, in our communities, would be the peace of God. And so, Father, our prayer is simple. Overwhelm us with this reality, with this treasure that we have received, that you've gifted us with, and then commission and send us to share that with the world around us. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord God, that you kept every promise Thank you that in a, starting next week, we'll start celebrating the fact that you kept the ultimate promise of sending your son to this earth to be God incarnate, to be the savior of the world. And because of that and everything that Jesus did, that we have peace with you now and forever. So we rejoice in you and we give thanks to such an amazing and awesome God. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.